Did you know that learning a musical instrument is good for your brain? For adults, it can lead to improvements in working memory, resilience to age-related hearing loss, and lower levels of stress and depression. According to University of Texas research, it's even more effective than brain training games. And the best part is, it's fun! Even if you've never played an instrument, we'll have you playing songs in a month. You may think of School of Rock as a place for kids, but we have lessons for adults, too. School of Rock Eden Prairie offers lessons on guitar, bass, drums, keyboards, and vocals. You choose whether your lessons are in person or online. We also have adult bands if you want to jam with other adults. And AM950 listeners get 10% off 45 or 60-minute weekly lessons. Visit EdenPrairie.SchoolOfRock.com or click on the link on AM950Radio.com. This is your host, Paul Metzen. We have a most uh, perfect guest on tonight. James Moore is talking to us from his home in the hill country west of Austin, Texas. We're going to find out about how horrific the weather conditions were down there, how that whole thing got started uh, with their politicians and their energy grid, and see where it goes from there. But James Seymour is the New York Times best-selling author of Bush's Brain, How Karl Rove Made George W. Bush Bush Presidential. Three other books on Bush, and uh, he has been honored with an Emmy from the National Academy of Television Arts and Sciences for his documentary work and is a former TV news correspondent who has traveled extensively on every presidential campaign since 1976. He has been retained on-air political analyst for MSNBC and has appeared on Morning Edition on NPR, NBC Nightly News, CBS Evening News, and more. He has been writing and reporting on Texas politics, culture, and history since 1975 and continues to write frequent political opinion pieces for CNN. I believe he's working on one as we speak. Jim Moore, how are you and the wife doing uh down there uh, a little west of Austin today? Well, we, we've been lucky, Paul. We have electricity, but we don't have water. We haven't had water for three days, so we're keeping our distance from each other. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's really been, you know, I've lived in Texas a long time, and I've seen all kinds of weather, and because of the nature and the size of our state, we do get all kinds of weather. I mean, I was in Amarillo one time on a campaign trip traveling with Walter Mondale, I remember, and it was like three degrees. Mm-hmm. And we were flying down to Brownsville. And when the plane landed in Brownsville, it was 98. And we are in the same state. You know? so <laughs> the, the weather gets weird here, but I have never seen anything like this in, uh, you know, in more than four decades of living in Austin. We've never had weather of this nature. Now, we have gotten these sort of freak ice storms and, and snowstorms. I remember when our daughter was little, she went out on the patio and on top of the table and, 
and managed to gather up enough snow to make like an eight-inch tall snowman. But generally speaking, this stuff lasts 24 hours. But this polar vortex has come down here and throttled us, and uh, it, it still is uh, has got us in a grip of uh, serious problems. I mean, there's a human... There is really a humanitarian crisis taking place in Texas right now, Paul. There are there are literally millions of people in the dark, in the cold, freezing in their houses and their cars. They are lining up the water by the hundreds and the thousands in our major cities. They're looking for food. And, and the interesting thing is that our government is doing almost nothing. <laughs> I mean, you think by now... Governor Greg Abbott would have called out the National Guard to help facilitate some rescue efforts and open warming centers. And those are opening, but we need more and more of them. I mean, it's, it's, and of course, you may have heard the latest news that our U.S. Senator Ted Cruz has decided it's no big deal. And he jumped a flight to Cancun, so, uh, to hit the beaches. You know, the guy who's been screaming about Mexicans coming to the United States for a better life just took out to Mexico to find a better life for a week or two. I know. It's 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 absolutely mind blowing how tone deaf Ted Cruz is. Of course, we we knew that, but uh, but you there's other uh, characters in here. There's a guy you wrote about who I think ran uh, Trump's energy office. You know quite a bit about. It. I think you've written about him, Rick Perry. Yeah. Didn't he have a hand in a little bit of this? Well, I'll tell you what he's he's doing. Uh, he's he's been doing when he got out of office and he was uh, energy secretary for Trump. He spent a lot of time in Ukraine and and parts of uh, Eastern Europe to put together some natural gas contracts for companies that uh, he was invested in and he worked for it. He sat on the boards, and so you know he's a big believer in natural gas. And look. Natural gas is important to any place, any electrical operation in this country. But Perry's profiting off of it. And so when he says things like Texans would rather suffer a little bit than connect to the national energy grid and be exposed to federal regulations, he's being, as usual, very self-serving. I'm sure that many people sitting in their houses and freezing right now are saying, Thank God we're not connected to the electrical grid on a national basis where we could get electricity and be warm. You know, I'm, I'm with the governor on this. Oh, my goodness. It's, just, it's absurd, man. It's absurd. Well, and it's heartbreaking because, you you know, not only the people that are their homes that are freezing, all the homeless, all the cattle, all the livestock, all, you know, I'm a, a big dog guy. I, you know, I read these stories about people with their dogs and their cats huddled together all to keep warm. I've been without, uh, 12 years ago, we had a cold snap in Minneapolis. My pipes froze. I know what, I know what 24 hours without water is like. You have no idea how much you take water to drink, to go to the bathroom, to cook, uh, to brush your teeth, how much you take it for granted until you, you can't have it. I can't imagine you guys not having it for three, four, five days. It blows my mind. We just aren't prepared for this kind of thing. You know, Paul, our homes are not built in a way that are winterized like they are in places in the Midwest, like Minnesota. Uh, you know, most of the piping, it, it, of course, is plastic. It's PVC. It's much more prone to rupture. If it freezes, we don't have 
We don't have snow plows. We don't even have sand supplies to <laughs> spread on the roads. So we're just, we are waiting for Mother Nature to return things to normal. But we don't have the resources and the infrastructure to deal with cold weather. Even the airports, you know, like Austin's airport, I think, has has one plow, I believe. And, of course, Dallas is a bit more prepared because weather gets further south there. Inclement cold stuff is more frequent there than it is here, 200 miles south of Dallas. But this has reached all the way down to the Rio Grande Valley, which is subtropical. And so uh, it's, it's, a, it's a daunting thing we're going through here. But I guess the good news is that the long-range forecast is out and uh, the temperatures for the next month are above normal. So uh, we won't see this again, I suppose. We're speaking with uh, James Moore, journalist and author from his home in the Hill Country outside of Austin, Texas. We're recording this show on Thursday, uh, February 18th, so hopefully by the time this airs on Saturday the 20th, things will have warmed up. James, the one uh, person I think we all miss during these times is the great Molly Ivins. Would love, would love to hear what she had to say. You must have uh, hung out or around uh, or I'm sure read Molly over the years. Tell us a little bit what a firecracker she was. Molly was exceptional. She just, she just had a way to cut through, through the noise. You know, she, uh, uh, she and I were in the same office, uh, in the same hallway. But not in the same office, but in the same hallway. And our offices had adjoining walls, so saw her regularly and, and uh, for more than 20 years and she was just she was brilliant she was funny you know she had this she had this ability to look at things and and boil them down to uh, the basics I remember one of the funniest things that uh, she said was uh, uh, she was trying somebody was asking her to explain George W. Bush's quote-unquote compassionate conservatism and Molly said, compassionate conservatism is when they ask you if you want green jello or red jello for your last meal before they stick the needle in your arm. <laughs> God bless her. And, and she was, and she made a great comment about one of the, the Republican primary campaigns and, and the, the two candidates back in the day. I think one of them was Senator Phil Graham, and he was running against uh, uh, a former congressman uh, from West Texas named Ken Hansen. And somebody asked her about the choice, and Molly said it was the evil of two lessers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely brilliant stuff. And, of course, uh, she kind of got her start up at the uh, Minneapolis Tribune. I'm not sure exactly what the years were. So uh, we uh, uh, we claim a little bit of Molly uh, for giving us a little bit of her magic uh, in her when she was uh, – learning the trade and uh, learning how to uh, uh, take the powerful to task. We've got uh, Jim Moore on for the whole show tonight. We're going to be talking more about uh, the weather in Texas, uh, what caused it, uh, the power grid, uh, the bad apples behind that, and then we're going to get into a little bit of the culture and music as well. We're going to take out uh, this segment with a little uh, waltz across Texas with a great Ernest Stubb and then back with Jim Moore all night. When we dance together, my world's in disguise. It's a fairyland tale that's come true. 
And when you look at me with those stars in your eyes, I could waltz across Texas with you. Waltz across Texas with you in my arms. Waltz across Texas with you. A storybook ending. I'm lost in your charms, and I could waltz across Texas with you. Oh, buddy, now. Welcome back to the second set of the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This is your host, Paul Mensa. My guest on, and I'm so excited to have him on for the whole show tonight, Mr. James Moore, an author and journalist uh, based down in Austin, Texas. James, when did you uh, get down to Austin? Well, I, uh, uh, my childhood was spent uh, between Mississippi and, and Michigan. My dad was from uh, Mississippi, and uh, when he got home from the war, he wanted to you know, become a, a farmer because he grew up on the farm and he loved the outdoors. But the only thing that was available was sharecropping, and that's not a way to, that's not a business plan. So mm-hmm. when uh, when the opportunity came along for my parents to uh, go to Michigan to get a job uh, in the factories, uh, uh, you know, they bought, they bought bus tickets for us and, and went north. And so I, I grew up mostly in Michigan, was educated up there, but um, my heart has always been in the American West and the and the South. And so, you know, I went to, uh, I started out in radio and uh, a little market in uh, eastern Arizona, and then I went up to eastern Colorado, And uh, but I had always been in love with, with Texas as a kid, and I had an opportunity to work in border radio back in the mid-70s. Hmm. My wife and I moved down to uh, uh, the Rio Grande Valley in McAllen. We were there for a little bit, and then uh, I had an opportunity to get into television news and went up the river to Laredo for a while before coming to Austin. So I've been in, been in Texas since uh, 75, but Paul, you surely know that unless you were born over the sacred soil, you live your life as an outlander here. <laughs> just, uh, you, know, you just are not a true Texan unless you... You came into the world. You came out of the womb and put your feet down on the soil here. You know, although I have to tell you, Mr. Moore, uh, I had uh, I had been going down to Austin. I went down for the first time in 1982. My sister and her husband lived down there, so Mom and Dad and I drove down from Minnesota. And uh, I spent uh, a week down there over the Christmas holiday going to all the clubs. I saw Billy Joe Shaver at the Continental with his quartet, with his with his trio, son Eddie playing a uh, beautiful Strat into a Marshall stack. There was only maybe six people there because it was the holiday. And then I kept missing this great guitar player I kept reading about 
who just started to make a name for himself named Stevie Ray Vaughan. So I'd go to Antone's yeah. and then I'd go to Hutt's Diner. And by then I'd go there nightly and the bouncers out because, oh, you just missed him. But uh, I fell in love with Austin. Then I went back down in 85 and started playing. And uh, I uh, had the honor to get to know Larry Monroe. And he had, oh, a, yeah. he had me on his show every time I was down there. And he named me an honorary Texan at one point. So... Uh, I'm going to yeah. take that. I'm, I'm still an outlander, buddy. And, and <laughs> in, terms, in terms of uh, uh, the venues you just mentioned, Hutch Diner is gone now, and Antones yep. is gone now, and of course, Stevie Ray is no longer with us. Um, I had the I had the serendipitous sort of pleasure. I used to like to hang out at Antones. It was a great place to go after work and hear newcomers playing music and sip a beer and, and uh, I walked in there one time and I was meeting a buddy from the Capitol and we were sitting there talking and then this, this guy got on the guitar and I mean he immediately got our attention I looked over and it was it was a guy barely out of his teens it then he may have been 16 or 17 he was playing before uh, you know they became uh, strictly a bar and uh, he was able to do it so I, I, I watched him and then later I asked uh, the guy working the bar who the hell that kid was, and he told me it was Stevie Ray. And then wow. it all came it all came for full circle for me because I had uh, I had to report uh, on the helicopter crash uh, when he passed oh, away. I was uh, so reporting sad. for NBC NBC up there, and then came back to Austin, and it was a it was an astonishing sight to see you know hundreds of thousands of people spread across the shores of Town Lake for. A, uh, a silent memorial for him uh, with people holding up flashlights and lighting matches and stuff for like an hour or so into the sunset. He, he really he really reached people here, and of course we are a politically or a musically sensitive community. So he was he's an icon, as you know. There's a beautiful statue of him uh, down on the lake right downtown. Too. I, I've seen that statue. It's it, it's it's just beautiful. I believe there's a statue of Willie Nelson down there too, somewhere. Correct. Yep, yep, it's right in front of the new Austin City Limits building. It's uh, it's right uh, right downtown on uh, I think it's Fourth uh, Street. Now, were you uh, lucky enough to be down there when the uh, Armadillo, Armadillo World Headquarters oh, yeah. was around? Yeah. Tell yeah. us what those that. that was. That you know, kind of what really got that started. Kind of where the line lay down with the lamb. Uh, in terms of that's where uh, I was reading a thing on Lloyd Doggett. A few weeks ago, I think I, I hit you on that on Twitter, and he was talking about one of his first uh, fundraisers. I think was at the Broken Spoker at Armadillo, and he, and he said, "When I was there, I was there for that concert." And, and what, I, what I loved about it, Doggett referred to back then. You knew it was he was great. His line was long hairs. That's where the yeah. long hairs hung out with yeah. the rednecks. Tell us about what the, what was the one of the greatest shows you saw at the Armadillo. Oh man, I saw so many great people there. I saw BB King, um, of course Willie, um, you know um, Harry Chapin. A lot of people played there. Oh, uh, I loved uh, I loved seeing Commander Cody and the Lost Planet Airmen when they when they were in their glory days. Man, I just I couldn't name all the people that I saw there, and it was just it was it was a special place. I mean, it was just. Um, uh, you know, it was the the construction and the decor and the ambiance were 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 a little bit 
erratic. I mean, it was one of those places. I mean, who puts who puts carpeting down in a beer joint, right? So you walk you, you walk in and your feet would stick to the carpeting, but you'd know you'd know that you know you're going to look up in a minute and you're going to see somebody like Willie walking out and playing. I mean, half the time these guys. They weren't even promoted. You, you, you knew to be there because something was going to happen every weekend. And then the, the sad part for me, of course, this is another full circle thing, is that I had to, I had to report on it when the place was bulldozed to put a, a, a bank building on the same corner. Oh. Just, it, it tore the heart out of so many of us. It's been so much great time there. You know, when I got down there in 80... Five and I have a very good friend named uh, Booker Michael, and uh, who was from Grand Rapids, Minnesota, but had moved down there years ago. And he was a percussion player. He played with Pawnee Bone and Joe Ely and and Towns and the rest. So he was really locked in. And uh, he and his uh, wife Edith would take me around, and I so got to feel that Austin vibe. Uh, people were so friendly. You know, you'd go down to a restaurant down on Congress, and they'll say, oh, we'll be right back. we got to go smoke a joint. Yeah. <laughs> they closed the place. You could help yourself to coffee. And they'd come back. But now I've been there many times over the years. The last time in 2012 when I actually met Carl Rove at Threadgills on the River. Uh, that's a story maybe for another time. Um, oh, but, boy, I can't wait for that one. Oh, it, it was, it was quite a 10-minute quite a, quite a uh, episode of my life, but it's now when you go down and you read about, you know, Dell came down and then all of the, um, all the big money is coming in, driving up the rents, running out those great uh, four bedroom houses that the bands used to rent for 200 bucks a month in South Austin, now going for 1500 and musicians are getting run out and clubs are closing. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that part of Austin, and more uh, with our guest, uh, James Moore, a great author, a journalist, and just a cool cat, and a uh, uh, motorcycle cat from Austin on the next couple of sets in the Wall of Power Radio Hour. The only two things in life that make it worth living Is guitars that tune good and firm, feeling women I don't need my name in the marquee lights I got my song and I got you with me tonight Maybe it's time we got back To the basics of love Let's go to Luke and Buck, Texas With Waylon and Willie and the boys This successful life we're living got us few like the Hatfields and McCoys Between Hank Williams' pain songs And Newberry's train songs And blue eyes crying in the rain Out of Luke and Bach, Texas Ain't nobody feeling no pain Welcome back to the third set of the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This is your host, Paul Metzler. Of course, we just heard a tune you've all heard before, featuring Waylon Jennings and Willie Nelson called Lukenbach, Texas. We're talking to a really cool cat from Austin, Texas, Mr. James Moore, an author and journalist. 
James, we were talking about, uh, I was kind of bemoaning the fact that Austin has really been changing over the years. What's it like now uh, in the year 2021 in the heart of Austin? Well, it's not. I've got a, I've actually got a joke about this, Paul, that I've used on people, and I think it, it best, best explains what's happening here now. Is it's uh, how many Austinites does it take to change a light bulb? And, of course, the answer is 100. It's, it's one to change the bulb and 99 to talk about how great the old bulb was and what beautiful light it gave off. Right? Yeah, <laughs> but it's, there's some truth to that, though, don't you believe? Don't you think? Well, yes, of course. But, but look, I mean, so many great places are disappearing. And, and people, you know, so many venues have closed, partly because of the pandemic, but a lot of them are beginning to suffer because they can't pay their property taxes. You, you mentioned Threadgills. Threadgills, you know, the original Threadgills up on the north side was where Janis Joplin's career began. Exactly. You know, Kenneth, Kenneth Threadgill let her sing at the restaurant. That place is closed. It's out of business. Oh. It couldn't make money. And and Threadgill's downtown and the river closed. They supposedly were, were paying as much as $64,000 a month in rent and taxes. Oh, my goodness. So they had to go out of business. And, and the real estate stuff here, uh, you know, downtown Austin. If you want to, if you want to get yourself a condo or an apartment or something anywhere close to the central business district or on the west side or the east side, you know, in many cases it's as high as fifteen hundred bucks a square foot. Wow! And, and you can't, you cannot touch a two bedroom apartment downtown for anything less than twenty five hundred a month. So it, it's hard. You know, I mean, it's. It's really hard. I mean, you have, you have people who want to be here. And I am certainly not an anti-change guy. I mean, I, I think a lot of good things have happened in Austin, but we are not ready for the growth. We don't have a, a tax or in, a transportation structure, infrastructure that, that can manage all the people coming in. And, you know, the property taxes are onerous as heck. I mean, people... The young couple trying to get a new house here, you know, is going to have to have their property taxes in escrow, and on a on a two hundred fifty thousand dollars house, they're looking about five grand just for property taxes. Wow! You know, so it's 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 a challenge what's happening here, and and you know, I, I'll, I'll be honest with you, Austin today uh, is certainly not what it was in the past. There's still much to recommend this place. But a lot of the restaurants, a lot of the music venues, and the culture that brought guys like me, who was long hair when I got here, um, you know, it doesn't exist anymore. So, I mean, we're having to make compromises and decisions. I mean, I I struggle every day with whether, you know, my, our daughter is grown, my wife and I look at this house we're in, and, you know, what we're paying to live here, and we're going, why are we doing this? But, you know, this is our town, and we want to be a part of you know, making it what it can be, or at least keeping what what is valuable. But uh, most of us who are interested in that feel like we're failing. I uh, when I came down in the mid '80s, and then I would come down almost yearly, and uh, I've had a chance to play down there, oh six, seven, eight times. 
and I got a feel for a lot of those old timers, like the uh, the great poster artist Michael Priest. I got to know, yeah. and I got to know uh, uh, Smiling Eddie at the heart of Texas music, and uh, a lot of characters, and was able to get a chicken fried steak at the original Threadgills, and I really got a feel for it. But a place I was really intrigued by and loved because I heard about it for years, and I know you've got some stories. They had a great bar. The last time I was there, it's kind of turned it into a sports bar that broke my heart. But the Driscoll Hotel. Yeah. So the Driscoll, the Driscoll's a fantastic place, and and uh, you know the bar there is the bar there is uh, part of the. Um, you'll find this intriguing. It's part of the the Roaring Fork restaurant in there. And the Roaring Fork is, uh, um, they have two of those. There's another one on the north side, but inside the Driscoll. Oops, I'm sorry, I'm talking Stephen F. Austin. I, I, I can switch to the Driscoll very quickly because there's even better stories there about LBJ and hanging out there in the bar. And, and you're right, it used to be very much, um, very much an old-style you know, downtown place where the Powell's hung out and, and uh, you know, didn't, didn't, uh, would come there because didn't Jim, it's, such, it, it's such an old institution. Yeah, well, didn't LBJ's brother Sam live there for a long time? Yeah, and, and the stories, and he did, and the stories, there's, there's the LBJ suite on the second floor uh, over the atrium of the place um, that uh, uh, is, is rumored to have been where LBJ had many of his trips with his Paramours, uh, you know, but right across, right across the road, almost virtually from uh, the TV station he owned, uh, KTBC, uh, and uh, you know that was where he hung out at the bar, and, and he would sneak in there allegedly with his women. So I'm not, I'm not speaking out of turn here. Robert right. Carroll covers this, covers this in his books about LBJ. So, but yeah, that's a that's a very storied place, and it's a it's a wonderful place to get a sense of the history and the ambiance and the politics of Austin if you're ever in town. And there's always somebody at the piano after five o'clock and it's just a, it's got a grand, almost a European sort of uh, 1920s uh, a jazz age feel to the joint. It's, it's, it's a terrific spot. I think it was built in what, like the 1860s or 70s or 1880s, something like that? It was just post-war, not too long after the Civil War. Yeah, because it's a beautiful building, just a beautiful yeah, building. Yeah. And they and they've really respected the architecture. You know, they've obviously had to to do some things to to maintain the place, but uh, it doesn't look much different than it did originally. The inside is the inside still glorious. Uh, James Moore, tell us a little bit about all of the. Uh, Texas formed its own energy grid, and that has been a large part of the problems this week in Texas. Tell us about that, the deregulation. Well, this is, this is Paul, this is just, a, it's, it's about conservative politics. And, I mean, the, the grid has been around for a while. And in the 70s, it was codified to stay unconnected from the national grid. And the U.S. government manages and regulates uh, an eastern and western electric grid. And Texas, except for El Paso and a few other places, are not connected to it. And the reason that the state lawmakers wanted it that way is, you know, they felt the state was energy independent and that we could avoid federal regulations controlling prices and service delivery and that kind of thing because we had our own natural gas and oil and 
and wind and solar. And uh, so uh, we don't have federal regulations here. What that allows to happen is that uh, service delivery and prices can be controlled and even manipulated uh, by the operator of the grid, which is ironically named the Electric Reliability Council of Texas. They were certainly not reliable. But in any case, they want to make money for their shareholders. They don't want to invest, which which a, a regulatory authority would tell them, look, you have to, you have to protect your generating plants for a 100-year event. You have to upgrade them to protect them from freezing, to protect them from from tornadic winds and that kind of thing. And so the state, the state never puts that onus on these operators, and consequently they don't upgrade, and that's that's what happened when this this, this uh, persistent cold weather hit. The natural gas plants shut down and uh, were unable to operate. And uh, the grid was shedding load and shutting people down so it could keep operating. And, and one state lawmaker said it was just minutes away uh, from complete collapse, which would have meant that, you know, here we are in Texas, which runs around bragging about energy independence. And we have a U.S. senator like Ted Cruz making fun of California when the electricity goes out there in the forest fires, uh, we were on the verge of, of a system that, that might have collapsed and which could have been months without electricity as it was being rebuilt <laughs> and reconnected and refurbished. So it's just, well, the conservative politics here, they inform everything. And, it, and it's, it's really quite tragic. You, you know, they like to talk about, well, we haven't raised our gasoline tax since 1991. Which is absolutely true, but instead of getting money from the gas tax to build roads and infrastructure, they're letting private corporations uh, build toll roads, and, and more and more toll roads pop up. And, and this this is the kind of thing where they say, "Well, we don't we don't have an income tax." Well, we don't, but we have we have very debilitating property taxes, and we have bonded indebtedness in Texas, it's almost $30 billion. Hmm. It's, just, it's a shell game. It's just a shell game. And now you're being taxed physically, mentally, spiritually with, with all of the, uh, with all of the uh, uh, trials and tribulations that are going on with all you fine people. I just, uh, yeah, it breaks my heart. I got so many of my favorite people uh, that that I met over the years are from Texas, and of course some of my favorite musicians are from Texas. We've got a minute and a half left. The other woman I miss right now, who I'm sure you met, tell us a great story about the uh, uh, great governor of Texas, Miss Ann Richards. Well, I could tell you many stories about her, but uh, a quick one in a minute and a half was uh, traveling on the re-election campaign when Bush defeated her. She had a program called um, smart jobs, which was to retrain people into technology away from the oil patch. And we were traveling, and it's been a long day on the campaign, and we were in, uh, here in East Texas, and she wanted to tour a factory that was doing this new kind of welding of aluminum uh, that had been a part of their smart jobs training program. And we went in there, and it's about 100 degrees outside, and 120, and I was wearing a coat and tie and a shirt to do my TV report, and she kept dragging this thing on, and we're all sweating and everything. And we finally, finally, she realized she was getting agitated, and she, and she used to hold the news conference and 
we set up our cameras, and my cameraman made me hold the microphone out in front of her on a boom. And, you know, I'd been, I'd been watching these guys weld and everything and thinking about smart jobs and everything. I'm standing there dripping sweat, and, and uh, everybody was behind the row of cameras except me because they was holding this microphone on a boom. And uh, I got agitated, and I was a senior guy in the press corps that day, and, and she looked over at me, and she, she said, well, Jim, you want to get started? And, I, and she, she always called me Jim. They had, like, three syllables in my name. <laughs> and and uh, uh, she said, do you want to get started? And I said, I said, sure do, Governor. And she said, well, what's your question? And I said, well, you know, if welding is a smart job, what's a dumb job? <laughs> and she looked me up and down, Paul, and I knew I'd made it. And she said, she said, well, Jim, it don't look to me like being a microphone holder is a smart job. <laughs> <laughs> you walked right into that one more. <laughs> you know, you, you just, she's just not a woman you want to mess with. But, you know, I, I also want to say very quickly, I know you run out of time, but that, that she was amazing. She had no use for me because she always thought reporters were out to get her. But let me tell you something. She really, really loved people, and she nurtured my daughter. She oh, sent, sweet. She sent a letter to my daughter, handwritten every year, telling her what she had done that year as governor. And when she was after she was out of office, she sent my daughter a bracelet for her confirmation at her church. And then when she graduated, she sent her this beautiful crystal bowl with a pewter top inscribed with the governor's name, my daughter's name, her date of graduation. And then she wrote her a, a letter, a recommendation to get her into college. Because, you know, she would, I'm sure if she saw me on the street, she'd wave from the other side of the street, but she wouldn't stop to talk. But she, my daughter adored her, and she adored my daughter. What was your daughter's name, or what is your daughter's name? It's Amanda Noel. Okay, Amanda Noel. That's a beautiful story. That shows you not only what a great politician Ann Richards was, but what a great human being. Thanks for sharing that story. We've got one more set with author and journalist Jim Moore on the Wall of Power Radio Hour. Stick around. Welcome to the last set of the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This is your host, Paul Metzen. We're having a most enjoyable talk with journalist and author James Moore. So, Jim, you know, I tell people I've— uh, I spent some time in Dallas. I've been to the uh, book depository twice. Um, I'm a, I, you know, I'm not a conspiracy theorist overall, but I am a conspiracy theorist uh, in terms of I don't think uh, Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. What is your take on the JFK assassination and surrounding? Well, it's uh, funny you ask. I could talk on this for hours on end. Um, you know, uh, I was a young guy as a kid coming of age when that happened, and and it, it had a profound effect on my life. I've never been able to let it go. I started I started serious research on it in uh, junior high school, and I have been ever since. And um, you know, it, it's it's hard to it's hard to talk about in in a, a couple of minutes. And I will I will sound you know you're not a conspiracy theorist when there was actually a conspiracy. <laughs> um, you know, so so this. This this is a confluence of a lot of things, and, and uh, it, I don't know where to even begin. But the the military folks did not want to get out of Vietnam. The JFK signed the National Security Action Memorandum Number Two Sixty Three to end U.S. involvement by the end of nineteen sixty four in Vietnam. That was 
fundamentally signing his death warrant. He'd been trying to have uh, back-channel conversations with Castro and uh, with Khrushchev to, to create a new detente and a global peace, which meant no more money for war. Uh, he had angered the mob because the mob had helped uh, his dad uh, get him elected. And then when he got elected, uh, Attorney General, the brother, RFK, went after the mob. So they were they were angry, and then the oil guys in Texas were angry because uh, he was going to reinstitute the windfall profits tax on oil in Texas, and they didn't want that to happen. And so there were a lot of there were a lot of cultural and economic dynamics uh, that that made him evil in their eyes. And then, of course, the the CIA had not been constrained in the post-war era. And when he refused to provide air support for the Bay of Pigs invasion, a lot of powerful guys inside of the CIA uh, decided something had to be done. And, you know, I think they got money from Texas. Uh, I think that the, the whole thing came together in a way that the mob was able to help out by, uh, by getting rid of Oswald to Jack Ruby. Um, you know, the pieces, if, I highly, there's two books that I would highly recommend if anybody's interested in this on a serious level. And one is James Douglas' book, uh, JFK, uh, why, uh, JFK assassination, why he died and why it still matters. And then there's another book done by David Talbot, who's the guy who founded Salon.com, uh, which is called, um, uh, The Devil's Chessboard, uh, the CIA, Alan Dulles, and uh, uh, the death of uh, JFK or something of that nature. I don't remember the subtitle, but they're both magnificent books, great scholarly research that will help people understand the historical context of what happened in Dallas. And also, it's you know, it's time for us all to reclaim our history. We're not going to end up being a country we could be unless we acknowledge the fact that these types of things could happen here. We're just human beings like every other country in the world, and it did happen here, and we need to, we need to acknowledge what the truth is and learn to live with it and, and learn from it and, and grow into a better country that we could be. Jim Moore, this has been such a fascinating conversation, and now uh, we're going to have to schedule the next uh, episode of the Wall of Power Radio with James Moore, author and journalist, because I want to do the dedicate the whole show uh, to to your take on the uh, JFK uh, assassination, James. Thank you so much for taking time. Uh, it's Thursday, Jan, uh, February eighteenth. I hope by the twentieth things warm up down there. We're going to stay in touch with you. Uh, we really appreciate your time. Uh, we hope you get uh, your le- your electricity stays on. We hope you start getting some running water. And but please keep us posted how we can help. I'll do it, Paul. Enjoyed it very much. Look forward to talking to you again. Thanks, James. Have a great day. Bye-bye. You too, buddy. Take care. Well, when you're down on your luck And you ain't got a buck In London, you're a goner Even London Bridge Has fallen down And moved to Arizona I know why 
And I'll substantiate the rumor that the English sense of humor is drier than the Texas sand. You can put up your dukes, or you can bet your boots, but I'm leaving just as fast as I can. I wanna go home with the armadillo. Good country music from Amarillo and Thanks for listening to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. The show was produced by Paul Metza, engineered by Patrick Lilia. We'd like to thank our guest, author and journalist, James C. Moore. Say a little personal note, if you're looking for a beautiful duplex in northeast Minneapolis, I'm selling mine. Get a hold of me at paul at paulmetza.com. We hope you're enjoying the upcoming springtime. It'll be right around the corner like my dad used to tell me. Remember to be kind and make someone happy.